All right. Okay. So yesterday we ended off in the middle of page 53. And we were discussing the analogy of sovereignty of a king and how that's what he calls his spashus chutzenius matzmusay. That's an, it's an extension, it's a radiation of an external quality from the self. Right? And um, we use the analogy of like a real, a real uh, monarchy um, that extended very far, imperialist Russia. Right? And the, the idea is that the, the power and authority of the czar's reign extends throughout the entire Russian Empire. And that doesn't really involve or engage the person who happens to be the czar at that given point in time. Right? That there is a, there is a um, what's often called the, the name of the king um, or, um, which carries the significance and weight and that's what causes other countries to reconsider whether they should invade the borders. That causes the that gives legitimacy to the laws and the government and all those types of things. It doesn't actually involve any, any, it doesn't involve any involvement in the actual human being who is the king. Okay. So we're in the middle of that third paragraph. It's not considered like one of the powers of the self. Like the power of love or the power of wisdom. What does that mean? That a person has the capacity to love. If you're going to love, then that involves you. You have to be experiencing the love. You have to engage in some way with who or what you love. Right? So that, that, that kind of faculty, that kind of ability of a person in necessarily involves their, their own being, themselves. And similarly with wisdom, right? If you're going to understand things, you're going to have a certain perspective, certain things are going to make sense to you, you have to be involved and engaged with that. Okay? And that means, by the way, that if you try to convey your wisdom or your love to others, you have to be involved with them. Okay? So, if, for instance, in the laws of tzedakah, um, it says that you're supposed to not just give the poor person money, you're supposed to give the poor person a good feeling. In other words, you have to feel positively towards them yourself and then get that positive feeling that you feel to be felt by them. So they walk away, not just filled up financially, but filled up emotionally. And we all understand that involves in you as a person engaging with them. Similarly with teaching, you want to convey knowledge, wisdom, understanding, you have to engage with your students. Right? And that's setting, that's setting set up in contrast to the idea of malchus, the idea of sovereignty right, that a real monarch has that doesn't involve engaging with the populace at all. That involves a certain image of the stature and grandeur and exaltedness of the monarch carrying weight in the eyes of both the people themselves and also surrounding countries in terms of whether they really want to start up with the king or not. And this is what it, the verse means when it says that Hashem reigned, he garbed himself in arrogance. They translate this as grandeur. What is geus? So, has anyone heard the word gaiva before in Hebrew? What does the word gaiva mean? 
what? Like haughty. Haughty, right? Okay. So um, that's the same root as the word geus. So Hashem garbs himself in a kind of an arrogance, a haughtiness, a... a that doesn't sound very nice, does it? Mm-hmm. No. What does that mean? There's, there's, an, there, there's something about the idea of the king and his sovereignty that we didn't discuss yesterday, but it, it's very important now that we have this contrast. What happens if the king does engage the people? If the king does engage with the people? Yeah, does engage with the people. What would happen? He would lose that sense of higherness. Right. The, 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 the notion that he's the king goes away. What? The king couldn't No. No. No, no, no. What do you mean? What I mean is like this. Okay. If the king conveys to the people a sense that they um, can really understand him, they can emotionally engage with him, that they're his peers in some kind of human way, then that quality um, that gives him that kind of power and authority over that, that entire populace goes away. Um, in other words, there's actually an art form to being a king. If you would like to be a king, what do you have to do? You have to learn how to maintain a kind of an aloofness in all interactions. Okay. By the way, I'll illustrate this in something. We don't really have kings anymore. We do have something where this remains slightly. Let's imagine that someone's in a court case with a judge. Now, first off, I'd like you to notice, where does the judge sit in court? What? On what level? Higher, right? Why does the judge sit higher? That's right. Now, also you'll notice, also you'll notice how does it work, right? The judge, everyone's there. The judge comes in and then what happens? And then the judge sits down. Okay, what's the significance of the judge sitting down? They can't. That they're there to stay. What? That they're there to stay. Where is the judge? There's there's a lot of symbolism wrapped around this. The judge comes out of where? His chambers. His chambers. So he's doing you, the people, a service by lowering himself to sit over you in judgment. You see how that works? That's the symbolism. Yeah. Now, what happens if the judge starts to show emotion? Like he, he, he gets upset about with one of the defend, with the defendant, right? Or, or with one of the lawyers. It humanizes him. And then what does that do to... It takes away his... It weakens his... It weakens that, right? Mm-hmm. right? In other words, the, the, the judge, right? right? If the judge is really a judge, you have no idea what's going through his mind until... He says it. He says it. And it's his words that carry the weight, not his emotion, not his intonation, right? Okay, that's a small sense of, of this. I mean, in, 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 for instance, in medieval Europe, and I know more about medieval Europe um, than I have to do about other cultures, but this is true in other cultures as well. People who were raised to be monarchs, this is something they, you know, some people have a knack for it, some people didn't, right? It's like everything in life, right? Some people have a better or some worse, but it's something you have to learn, you have to be trained, and you have to know how to do it. For instance, how does a monarch speak when they're upset? Right, they don't, the way they, speak. the way they always speak, right, right, the, the we are displeased should carry far more weight than any show of emotion. And so it, it, 
there's this because you're not sharing yourself. It's not you're not you're not bonding over conveying your wisdom, your emotions, how you feel. None of that's happening, right? There's an aloofness. There's a remoteness. There's a we are not peers. Okay, that's called gaze. There's a certain kind of now. It's not the same thing as like a kind of coarse haughtiness and and um, superiority sense. In fact, by the way, this I mean. This is, doesn't exist in American society at all, because um, Americans got rid of this. It's part of the American ethos. Um, and I think in Europe it's, it's more or less dead, but it used to be the case back when you still had a, a strong sense of the aristocracy, which is like this. If you're an aristocrat, you're of the noble class, and you get insulted by someone who's not of the noble class, of the commoners, what is expected of you? Not to not show offense. Why? How could you be offended by them? How could you be offended by them? In other words, you're, you're, not, you're, not, you're, not, you're not stepping on them. Right? If anything, right? In other words, your, 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 your attitude to them is either you have compassion for them because you know, the common people need compassion or you know, justice needs to be done, public safety needs to be concerned, but you're not emotionally supposed to be engaged because you're not peers. Now, on the other hand, what if one noble insults another noble? Well, now we have to have a duel and it's a matter of honor and the whole, you know. Now, if you take that and you put one person has that vis-a-vis the whole society at large, that's the idea of monarchy. And their interest is not like my own personal, what can I gain from the people? It's like, you know, these are my people, this is my country, this is my thing. But it only works when there is this geus. There's this, there's, this, there's this aloofness and remoteness. And so if God is going to be, if God's power as a creator and as an authority figure right, is going to be manifest, then God has to present himself, in what sense? Higher. Yeah, higher and aloof, right? He garbs and limits himself to be king over the world. Because for God, this is merely an external garment. In other words, God is, so to speak, playing a role. Right? God has adopted the role of aloof being with much power and influence. And it's from that place that now there can be this other thing called the world which God creates and governs, etc. And they exist by virtue of that divine influence being present within them, as we said yesterday. Okay? So, now what he's going to do is going to take this idea and he's going to stick it back to that verse that we, we quoted. Va'al kol David. And regarding all this idea, King David said, I exalt you, I raise you up, my God the king. Perish. Explanation. Elekai my God who bechin Hashem Elokim. This is a reference to God as He is known by the name Elokim. Koyach apay Elokim benifo, which is which is God's power of doing in what is done, as we spoke about yesterday. Bechinas memale kol And That's the same idea as memale kol So when we say that that God is present in the world. God fills the world. What do we mean that God fills the world? His 
Right. That, in other words, so let, let's, go, let's, let's go back with a few different analogies, right? If I throw a ball, right, the ball is flying because my power is still present in the ball. That's why it's flying, right? Yeah. If the people are being governed by, in, by those who speak in the name of the king, they have fealty to the king, right? The, the neighboring countries, right, are treat the borders as something real and serious and maybe even sacred, right? That means there's something of the king's presence extending over the entirety of his realm, right? But, but what is that? Is that the person? No, it's no. like aura. Right, that, right. And so it's that that fills the world. mamish. It is literally called my God. I will exalt you, my God, the king. Even though this is merely a very external aspect, right? Merely the notion of sovereignty, as we said above. But the root of this idea actually goes much deeper to a something called keser malchus. Okay, so what we have here is actually now two two aspects of malchus. Okay, we have the malchus that radiates outward. So again, think about the people, right? The, what, what do the people have of the king? They have this sense of his majesty, his exaltedness, right? That makes them have this deference, this fealty, this loyalty, etc. cetera, right? Um, that we spoke about, right? So that's the malchus as it extends out to the people. That's the kayach the power of the doing thing that's done. But that is rooted in something else which we have yet to discuss, right? What, what actually gives that its power is something else that we're going to call the Kesser of Malchus. And so what David is saying is that even though this divine power that permeates all of reality is seemingly very superficial, I will exalt it because I appreciate that its root actually goes very lofty, very deep to this place called Kesser Malchus. Turn the page. What is that? Shezel Bechines is Nasus Metzad this is the idea, the idea of Kesser Malchus. We're now in 55. This is the idea of the being exalted in and of himself, Tafka. This is what we allude to when we say in our prayers that God is a king who is exalted alone. Which is completely or, or categorically removed. When we say that he's king over the worlds that are created, Kiyadua, as is known. In other words, like this. The, he's contrasting two notions. There's the notion that, that, that someone is exalted, mitzad atzmai. He's exalted on his own. And then there's being the notion that he is exalted over something. Okay? In Hebrew, this is called hisnasas atzmi. Hisnasas means exalted, or raised up, or elevated. So he's, he's himself exhaust, exalted or intrinsically exalted versus Isnasos Ahazu exalted over someone else. Okay. Now, what does that mean? I'm going to use an analogy that's, that's brought somewhere else in Hasidus because these ideas are very 
removed from our experience often. So to to kind of make it a little bit closer, a little bit more relatable. There are many ways we can control ourselves. We can govern our behavior. Okay? For instance, we can use our wisdom. We can say it is not right or right, it is not proper to behave in a certain way. Um, and I would like to be, you know, I, I, I would like to act in the proper way because ultimately that's, it's better for me to act in a proper way. Um, I can just use kind of like just raw willpower to control my behavior. There's a lot of ways I can do to, to govern myself. But one way of governing oneself is to simply always live with the following mindset. Is this becoming of me? You know, is, is this, am I debasing myself by acting this way or not? In other words, you have a certain sense of um, your own kind of intrinsic worth and importance. And then every action, and for that matter, every action, but even, even the feelings that we have can be judged to what degree they are appropriate. What they, we call in Yiddish, it's past, it's appropriate, versus they're not, it's past nish, it's not appropriate, it's debasing me. It's an affront to my dignity to conduct myself in a certain way. Now, um, that is actually the ideal way to regulate your life, by the way. Of all the different things you can do, that's the best. Right? And that means that there is some part of you which is kind of like the king over all the other faculties, right? So it's like imagine you're a kingdom and you have subjects. Your subjects are your limbs. Your subjects are your different emotional, intellectual capacities, your power of imagination, your faculty of speech, right? And they all need to conduct themselves in such a manner that is appropriate, right, and dignified to who their sovereign is. And who's their sovereign? Their sovereign is you. And who is the you? Well, that's a good question, right? <laughs> right? Um, and so there's a sense that, there is, that you have a specific purpose and a specific mission and, a, and, and, and that, that ha- carries unique value and that's what you need to live up to. And from that place, you... You bring all of yourself into alignment. Okay. In that, you have a notion of what's called hisnasos, of being exalted. What does that mean you have a notion of being exalted? It means there is something greater than simply what you can do. There's something greater than what you um, feel. There's something greater than what you like. There's something greater even than what makes sense to you. And that all these other things are judged by how well they meet this, they fit this other thing, which is kind of the, the, the core of who we are. Okay? But at the same time, that core of who we are, when we want to understand it, we understand it in terms of what, does that, what demands does that make on our cognition, on our speech, on our emotions, on our behavior. So they're, they're in relationship with each other. In other words, the part of myself that I'm holding myself up to, when I want to understand that part of myself, I look to the other parts of myself to understand what demands it makes of them. 
Okay. In other words, I'm using a part that is exalted over every other part of myself to govern myself. But when I understand what sense is it exalted, I don't look at it. I look and see what kind of demands it makes on the rest of me. Okay. So if I were to ask you, okay, if I'm not my intellect, I'm not my emotions, so describe me, who am I, what is this thing? And I would have to say, okay, I'm a unique person with an important divine mission. Say, okay, well, that's very nice. That's just a bunch of words. And then if I try to actually articulate that, I articulate it in terms of how I should behave, how I should feel, how I should have relationships, what my values ought to be, right? Much the same way we spoke about how when you want to look at the sovereignty of the king, you don't look at the person who's the king, you look at the subjects, right? Does that make sense? Okay. That makes sense? So that's, that's like kind of within the person well, something that would be analogous to what's called hisnasos al hazuas, being exalted over others. In, the case, in this case, we're not over other beings, just over other, over other parts of ourselves. Okay? Now. This is, by the way, an analogy. This is not the same thing, okay? This is just to illustrate. Okay, now. There's something called self-esteem. You're aware of self-esteem? You've heard of self-esteem? Mm-hmm. Are you aware that there's multiple kinds of self-esteem? Mm-hmm. There's something called implicit self-esteem and there's what's called explicit self-esteem. What's the difference between implicit self-esteem and explicit self-esteem? Mm-hmm. First off, what's is self-esteem? It's how you evaluate yourself. It's how you evaluate yourself, right? And meaning it's, it's evaluating worth. Okay, it's not evaluating, it's not evaluating your abilities. That's a different idea. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So if I'm if I say I'm bad at something, that's not a self-esteem issue per se. I might be bad at it. That's just like, you know, I also don't have wings, right? I don't have wings mm-hmm. and um, I'm not good at speaking Chinese because I never learned it, right? Those, right? Once something be, once it once it becomes about assigning value and worth to myself, right? That's self-esteem. Okay, so now what's explicit self-esteem? Explicit self-esteem is, because the self-esteem is happening within yourself, right? Is how you explicitly evaluate yourself. So, if you accomplish something, are you, do you see yourself as more valuable? Yes. If you fail at something, do you see something as less valuable? Yes. So that's called explicit self-esteem. Your, your mind is explicitly making judgments about you based on this, that, or the other thing. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, let's, Think about this. Where does explicit self-esteem tend to move a person towards? That becomes a dominant part of your, of your psyche. You want to never fail? You're going to become afraid of failure, right? Because failure means your worth goes down, right? So you become failure avoidant. Mm-hmm. And you start looking for successes, which are, what's the most important part of success? How guaranteed it is, mm-hmm. right? How, how noble the achievement is is less important than how achievable it is. So you can see how that like really is going to warp a person. That's bad. What's implicit self-esteem? Not based on implicit self-esteem is what kind of judgments do you have about yourself that underline any other mental activity? So for instance, someone who has high, or well, actually it's not too high and low because high and low is a little misleading. That's someone who has positive implicit self-esteem. 
when they fail, how do they react to that? It doesn't affect your how you think about positive, it. Positive, implicit. If they positive, implicit self-esteem, they 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 see themselves as having positive value implicitly before they get to the issue of the failure. Failure is like a step closer to their success. Well, they would they be assuming number one, the failure is bad, and it's right, and yeah. I shouldn't fail. On the other hand, right, failure. Right, does provide opportunities, right? So there's going to be both negative and positive emotions directed at the failure, right? Mm-hmm. Right. In other words, failure is something to be avoided because one should be successful. Failure is not something to be feared because failure can be, and, and actually necessarily is, a means to greater success. And that's all possible because your self-worth is not the issue here, right? Mm-hmm. But notice, it is actually in some sense the issue because there is a sense I should succeed. Why do you think you should succeed? Because you have value for yourself. Now, what if we reverse this? What if a person had negative implicit self-esteem and, and they failed? Everything they do is gonna... Uh, specifically, they failed. They would give up. It'd be worse than that. They'll think of themselves. That's what was supposed to happen. Of course I failed. I shouldn't be successful because I don't deserve to be successful. There's nothing about me that, 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 that should be successful, right? There's an implicit negative worth. Garbage should not succeed. Conversely, let's do the positive, right? Let's do the verse, right? What if a person with positive implicit self-esteem succeeds? How, do they, how would they... Do they feel like now they are more valuable, more important, more worthy because of their success? No, they feel like this is supposed to happen. They, they feel like the success is appropriate. It is good, right? And therefore, what do I need to do? Learn from the success so that I am able to, to, to repeat it and build upon it, right? Now, what if a person has negative implicit self-esteem and they have... They're like, why did I succeed? Right, there, there's an underlying skepticism about, right, this could not happen, this shouldn't be happening, it's clearly, right, this is the fluke, right? They, they, right? right? And, and their mind will certainly pre- prevents them not from, from accepting that this really happened and certainly is going to prevent them from learning from it. Yeah. You see, these two different types, of, like, so, like, it's, there's, there's the explicit self-esteem. Now, explicit self-esteem is like very, very bad for a person. I think you will understand why, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Implicit self-esteem is very important, but only when it's positive. Okay. Now, this is like just a side point. Here's a lie. You can create implicit self-esteem through explicit self-esteem. In other words, the more you feel good about yourself because you succeed... The, the more you'll have positive, implicit self-esteem. Is that true? No. It is not true. Um, it's just can not. You explain that? In other words, like this. Not why, just... Why? Not why. Just yeah. What was so, that? in other words, like this. If, if, if you arrange life for a person so that they feel successful a lot, so that they feel more valuable because they succeeded, and you minimize the places where they feel rotten because they failed, that does not cause them to have high implicit self-esteem. In fact, you know what it does do? It, makes it, work. it, make, it, it creates, it, it, right. Because 
what you are, what you are implying, no pun intended, is that there is no value to be found other than right, these external things. It's like they're giving all the kids a trophy thing. That's right. Okay. So now, okay, so I just want, this was just to describe, so what implicit self-esteem now is, here's the thing. Is implicit self-esteem itself have anything to do with your other abilities? No, it's just, it's just, it's just the sense that my individual life inherently carries value and worth, right? Okay, there's a question where that comes from, and that's a side point for right now. Okay, here's the thing. That thing that I said previously about how you kind of govern yourself, like is this appropriate for me, is this not appropriate for me, right? Where you're governing yourself, you have a sense of being exalted over your different faculties, tendencies, and abilities, right? Kind of king over your own little kingdom. What do you need to have in order to be able to do that? Subjects. A, no, Subjects. you have subjects. You have a brain. You have, you have eyes. You have all sorts of things you can control. And they're saying, like, are these things acting out of loyalty, out of, out of fealty? Are they in a, in a way that's appropriate to who I am? But that presupposes that whoever I am is something that you implicitly think is good. So... The ability to be exalted over the different parts of yourself requires you to have kind of an intrinsic sense of self-worth. Yeah, an implicit sense of self-worth. But that implicit sense of self-worth has nothing to do with the other parts of you. So you have this interesting dynamic inside a person. If I have a sense that my life intrinsically, inherently has positive value, then that can become the basis of formulating some kind of sense of who I ought to be and that sense of who I ought to be then becomes the king over all of my different abilities and faculties and parts of myself. So I have a sense in which, right, I am, I have two two senses in which I am beyond and I am more than simply my behavior, my feelings, my tendencies, my nature, my temperament, my, my understanding, my values. There's two senses in which I'm more than that. The deeper sense is that none of those things is what give me my value. And therefore, in a certain sense, they're all irrelevant on on some level. But then that building on that becomes a sense of, well, who should I be? If I'm in, right, like, I'm in, I have intrinsic self-worth. Like, what should my life look like? Who should I be? Who am I meant to to become? Not because that makes me valuable, because that, manifest that value. And once I have that second sense, I become this kind of being exalted over my other abilities. It kind of gives a sense of direction and purpose to how every other part of my issue ought to be. Okay, so now, in a similar sense, remember the king is exalted over the people? And it's that dynamic, the sense that the people have that he's on this whole other level that makes them have that kind of devotion and gives him the, the power and authority over them. Where does that sense come from if it's not being, if it's not fake, if it's real? It comes from the fact that the king, before he's exalted over the people, he has this kind of exalted, elevated thing within himself that has nothing to do with anybody else. Okay, now... The best way to put it is like this. 
if someone becomes king, do they feel like they gained something by becoming king? No. If they did, then what does that mean? That means that they don't have the sense of being exalted by themselves. It means that in some sense, their sense of themselves is bound up in this kind of societal thing, right? Which, by the way, most people do not have a sense of hisnasus atzmi. They just don't. That's the honest truth. A sense of hisnasus atzmi is there is a sense that my being is sufficient. I don't need more than myself. So I'll give you an example of a person who had hisnasus atzmi. Hillel, the great sage Hillel, came to the temple on Simchas Beis HaShoeva, and he declared, Imanikan, if I am here, Hakolkan, then everything is here. What does that mean? That could be a bad thing. It it's like never a bad thing. Like it sounds like he's full of himself a little bit. He is full of himself. Confident. Then a person who's full of himself, really, in the literal sense, it's never negative. Mm-hmm. He has no Breathe way enough. Space, what does he need? Nothing. He doesn't need anything. Mm-mm. Oh, I see. If I need your recognition, am I full of myself? Like in a literal sense? No. 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 I'm, I, there's too much me in my psyche, but it's not like it. Right? So here, here like, have you ever, um, like, like for instance, <laughs> Hill was also incredibly humble. Because, and these two things actually in, strangely go together. If you're very impressed with yourself, then clearly your mere being is not sufficient for you, right? You need, mm-hmm. you need something to jazz it up to make your, right? okay. And now what, and then everyone else gains their value because they're the thing that you use to jazz yourself up, right? That's kind of the narcissistic tendency. Mm-hmm. That's not as nice as me. Because as nice as me is a person, you know, to be as nice as a person, Right? The, the Rebbe wrote in his diary that in some sense there should only, a person's life should entail only two things, themselves and God. Now what does it mean, themselves and God? You shouldn't be dependent One. on the outside things other than like how you yourself evaluate yourself and how you relate to Hashem in this, in this sense. Like depending on others' recognition, this is very temporary and very, very fragile. It's deeper than that. That's right, but it goes deeper than that. It doesn't exist. Yeah, until... You don't have control over anything except for... Yeah. Are you with God? Yes. We hope so. <laughs> okay. Is there anything better than being with God? No. Is there anything that could enhance being with God? No. So, yeah, no, no. Like, no. The answer is no. Enhance, no. Enhance, if you or no, if you enhance means make it better. better. No. Right. There's nothing better than it, and there's nothing that you can improve. It's, like, it's not like a cake where you can make it better by adding some icing. Okay. So then if you're with God, what do you desire? Nothing. What do you need? Nothing. So th- your being with God is just sufficient. Yeah. Okay. Now, let's extend that. Now, what if you are God? Then what do you need? Nothing. So you're just sufficient for yourself, right? Yeah. 
Is that, an, is that what we think of when we think of a person who's arrogant and selfish and self-absorbed? Mm-hmm. No, that's the opposite. The person who's arrogant and self-absorbed is they need everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they need everything because, right? Mm-hmm. They need all that stuff to, to, to raise them up, to build them up. Okay, so what makes it, what are you saying? What makes it that being exalted over others is a legitimate e- expression of something and not just a social construct, not just a show, which often historically it was, but what would make it actually a real thing? In other words, to give you an example of what I mean, if I'm explaining you something, if I'm teaching you something, but I'm just repeating what someone else said and I don't really understand it for myself, there's something fake about that. Now, if all we're interested in is the importance of information transfer, a lot of times that works, right? A lot of times people teach things because society needs to get information transferred from one generation to the next. And it really doesn't matter if the person teaching it really understands what they're saying as long as the information is getting across, right? But then, it's, but then what's happening, like, the, 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 then the teacher is really just like a, is a machine, is a cog in, 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 in a mechanism, right? They're not, they're, they are not really, you are not seeing a manifestation of them in that, right? But what if the teacher really knows something? They really understand it, it makes sense to them. And then they're teaching you. Then what they're explaining is in fact an expression manifestation of them, right? And through the teaching, you can kind of get to know them, the sense of them, right? Okay, so then what makes being exalted over others an actual expression of who you are, something that is grounded and legitimate and not merely just a facade and a show and an agreed upon myth? If they're exalted over themselves, If they're, ex- not, if they're, if they're, if, 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 if their being exalted over you is built off of the fact that they're inherently exalted. In other words, go back to the analogy I gave you. If you tell yourself this is not appropriate for me, but you don't actually have any sort of positive, implicit self-esteem, you feel like you're lying to yourself. A person who, who like implicitly has a sense that I'm garbage and then says this, is, this pastness is not appropriate for me, it feels like a lie. You can lie to yourself for a certain amount of time and you know, add a little willpower and enough, enough jazz around and you can get it work, but it, it doesn't, it, it's illegitimate because it's not grounded in something real. What is it? that someone has to have that makes that they're exalted over others really be not just a, a charade, a game, a show, but in some way actual manifestation of them is they're exalted over others because they're intrinsically exalted. Okay, by the way, if you would ever like to know how do Hasidim choose a Rebbe, how Chassidim choose a Rebbe? By the way, it's a thing. Chassidim choose the Rebbe. It doesn't work the other way around. Mm. How do Chassidim choose a Rebbe? When he's not wanting to be exalted. What? That's one element of it. That's not sufficient. For instance, the, 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 the fifth Chabad Rebbe, he had an older brother who also didn't want to be Rebbe. <laughs> Neither of them wanted to be Rebbe. So you're right. Someone who wants to be Rebbe is already a red flag. <laughs> right? By the way, there's a difference between if he's not yet Rebbe or he's already Rebbe. If a Rebbe is already Rebbe and he doesn't want to be Rebbe, then that's also a red flag. But before he's Rebbe. He's not, like, he's not dependent on any other, like, I'm just thinking, like, they're not dependent even on working on the process of becoming the Rebbe. Like, they're not dependent on the process of, like, meaning, like, the Rebbe before, like, our Rebbe, who be, before he became Rebbe, like, he pursued, like, education. He wasn't doing things that, 
conventionally no because that you that that's that first off that's not 100 percent true even our rebbe did things that were conventional no, and, 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 and it's not true about all rebbe's it it, it, it it it's if if everything disappeared if everything disappeared if everything disappeared I'm not talking about the tragedy of like people dying or something. Just like like really, what would happen if like it if his if if his whole world collapsed to him and God, would it be less rich and less full than it is right now? No. That's a sign this person oh. could be a rebbe. Yeah. That's you, you you see what I'm saying? Like it it it. it how do you see that? You f- people have a sense of this. In other words, just like our, uh, just like th- there's an important thing to know about chassidus is that chassidus takes the view that just like colors and there's corresponding to colors, there's there's the power of sight with eyes, and there's corresponding to um, to sounds we have ears. So corresponding to intelligibility we have reason, right? Corresponding to truth we have something called the moon of faith, right? And these faith doesn't mean I believe. That something true means I sense the truth of the thing, the same way my eyes see colors, right? Mm-hmm. So we also have, if, 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 there's, if there's, there's, the, there's the trait of possessing that exaltedness, and there's this corresponding sensitivity to it. And we sense it in others. And just like if you know, if you can try and describe colors without using colors, you can't describe it. If you try to describe exaltedness, without referring back to exaltedness, if like someone doesn't get what you're talking about, they immediately turn into something else, like charisma or intelligence or power dynamics. It's not, but it's a sense that this, this person's life will not become fuller because I'm added into it. It won't become, it's not like there's less going on in their life. There's less, and then if they, you know, and so what ends up happening is there, there's a sense that there's, there's something truly beyond in this person. And it's that beyondness that grounds their being above you, being an authority figure over you, that creates that sense of fealty and loyalty. Which is, again, not the same thing as someone being wise. Wisdom is a different thing. Wisdom is you need to see the person has wisdom. And you realize having wise people in your life is a benefit to you, right? Because we human beings need more wisdom. It's a different dynamic. Yeah. Why is it not, sorry, just an outside question. We can like, talk about it later, but like, um, like, why is it not a reciprocal relationship between the, like you said, it's not the other way around. Like meaning the rabbi doesn't shoot the hosses, but like, isn't it the reciprocity? Like there should be a like, reciprocity both? Kind of ways, no, it doesn't work like that. It's only like one-sided thing, sort of. Like I understand why. Really, it's not I, I will, only I will answer. Way. I will answer your question, but this is going to get me in a lot of trouble. It's not politically correct at all. Okay. Okay. Hasidus makes the following observation: that the actual. basis of everything in male-female dynamics is the women, not the men. Isn't that Judaism generally? 
No, it's actually not Judaism generally. That's if you just hang around a chassidim, then they start saying things like this. But it's not. It's not. It's not so obvious for me. No. Now, what's the what's the reason for that? Yeah, what's the reason? What's the, what's the explanation? Why, why is everything grounded in the woman? The woman is the essence of, like, they're, like, the essence of the household, the essence of how the family works. She's the receiver? Like, like, so why? So, so if she's the receiver, then it should be the man who's initiating. What? I'm using something you know and you don't understand to explain something else you don't understand. No, it's no exactly like like pretend that pretend pretend uh, pretend we don't know anything. Like, can you say this very very simply? Why would it be that actually, if you really think think down about it, because she's, she's confident and she knows who she's. That's not always true. Because Real women are not always like that. It's like it's like she's the beginning and the end. She's the one actually fulfilling like creation. No matter how, like, it's okay. The reason is, the reason is because men are radically affected by women. Mm-hmm. Men absent women, men with women present are two very different beings. Mm-hmm. And so really, even though it is not obvious when you look at it at the beginning, really when you male, female dynamics, what you're seeing is men reacting to women. Yeah. And then from that point of reacting to women, then they're interacting with the women. Okay? This affects all sorts of different things, okay? Um, so, for instance, um, like, for instance, the, the, idea that the, the idea that the Torah puts the obligation to find a spouse on the man. Like, the idea being is that the man is going to try to the, the man is reacting to the fact that he's, he needs someone in his life and the woman's just doesn't, not reacting, okay? So if you start looking at the interaction, you can see there's more active element and more receptive element. And, but like, like, how did this whole interaction start? That's right. Man, man becomes aware of a woman or man and reacts and changes, right? There's a whole, I mean, so... Going back, to, going back to this, this is now extended to a general concept about Mishpia Mechabal, all recipients versus all people who are engaging and influencing. Who is actually the catalyst for the entire dynamic? The Mechabal. So for instance, um, the, the teacher is, doesn't, not they only teach when they're students, they never become a teacher unless they're reacting to? Students and being a teacher and not being a teacher are actually radically different things. Words, a person who is who is who is um, let's put this: a person who is a scholar and a person who is a teacher are actually almost in tension with each other. Because what is a scholar? What a scholar seeks to be where? By himself. That's right. And a teacher so much needs to be with their students that if the teacher has to go to exile, the students go with them because the teacher can't really fully flourish. So who caused that total change in their being? The student. Now, we have free will and we can shut those things down. But like, if, but the, but the, right. So this is the, the idea is that there was something what's called in Chassidus, a, a, setting, a setting of oneself aside. That's not really the idea of like sacrificing yourself. It's that you become radically redefined in terms of the other. And that actually starts... The, the recipient 
upwards. But that's something that is that is that, is, that that's something that, that that that's not overt. And then once that happens, now the teacher teaches the student. The man, you know, pursues the woman and marries her. Right. And same thing with with talking about you know actual like reproduction. Okay. So now if you take that, if you have a tzaddik and a bunch of non tzaddikim, how's it going to work? The non tzaddikim are there, and. When they're, when the tzaddik becomes aware of them, what does that do to the tzaddik? It changes them. Yeah. That's why I said that a rebbe who who's, who who, who oh, doesn't want to be rebbe, a rebbe, a rebbe who doesn't want to be rebbe once he's rebbe is also not a rebbe. A teacher who's reluctantly teaching, yeah. it's not a teacher. Right? There's the shift. In other words, right? So so in other words. It's, it's, it's not like, oh, I'm choosing and he's choosing and we're choosing together. It's no, no, no. The Hasidim recognize this is someone special. Mm-hmm. And it's that sense they have of him that causes a very radical, and the Rebbe actually said painful change. It's a, to, a, a totally like inverting of who you are. They don't, they don't need or want to change at all. That's right. Because, but they have to in this situation. Mm-hmm. Right. And that dynamic plays out. And again, a scholar becoming a teacher, men becoming husbands and fathers. This dynamic plays out on many, many, many levels. Okay? Um, again, it's, it's, and it's not like, it's not like, it doesn't, it's not about being better or worse. So it's like literally the person who could, I'll, I'll put, you know, put it back in the male female dynamics, right? Um, A man who couldn't get by on his own, most women wouldn't want to be their husband, right? Like, there's an interesting paradox. Like, if the, if the man doesn't really, if the man really need, that desperately needs you, do you really want him to be your husband? Okay. So then, it, right? so then you're like, I want to be my husband because he doesn't really, you know, he, he, he seems to be doing pretty well on his own. And then that caused him to realize, no, 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 actually, right? There's that weird shift. Okay, and that happens in every mashpia makabel dynamic. It happens also in the spiritual realms. The, 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 so that, that's why. So when you ask, is it reciprocal or is it not reciprocal? It's not a mutual agreement. It's the you know it's 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 the it's the non sadiqim sensing that he is a tzaddik, and then the tzaddik's whole being being inverted because of that towards them, and now. He, he literally can't give them up because he's, he's become totally identified with them, totally devoted to them. That make sense? Yeah. Okay. So, so, in a sense, well, so, so going back to the thing, so you have these two, two notions. There's his nasos atzmi, right? That, that my being is just purely sufficient in its own. And then that means that when I'm exalted over others and I have authority because of my higher station, that's not a charade, that's not a fake thing. That is actually manifesting something true, right? Of, of who you are inside. That make sense? Okay. Shazel midas malchus datzils bechinas datzils mamish. Okay. And this is what we mean malchus of atzilus in atzilus itself. So if you remember, we have this thing called malchus, malchus and atzilus, right? called Malchus of Atzilus. But we also say that Malchus of Atzilus isn't in Atzilus. Malchus of Atzilus goes to this other place to create a world, right? Where is the kingship of the king? Go back to the Tsar of Russia. Where is his kingship? 
It's all over the empire, right? But all over the empire is how he's exalted over his kingdom. But there's also the notion that he is just an exalted being in his own right. He is, he is, he's, a, he, right, he, he's beyond, you know, however you want to conceptualize that, right? And that it doesn't, that's not radiated out over the kingdom. That take, that's something that exists entirely within himself. In fact, so deeply within himself, it's not really something that can ever really be shared with others. So in that sense, it's deeper than even his, his wisdom or his feelings, which could theoretically be shared with others. So what are we saying? We have Malchus as Malchus ex- extends into created worlds. And then Malchus as it's, so to speak, within God, just being God. And that's what we call Malchus of Atzilus as it extends into the created worlds. Virchus Malchus of Atzilus within Atzilus itself. This is alluded to symbolically with the big Dalit in the end of the word Echad in Shema. Don't ask me what that means. I do know, but I'm not going to talk about it right now. Va'amar. So Dovnach says that he exalts that even this divine power within the worlds, right, which is merely just God's power and authority that brings things into existence, right, which vis-a-vis God is something very external, very superficial. He exalts that to be the king in the sense that he's a king who's exalted on his own. This is the unity of God who fills the worlds as he surrounds, with how he surrounds the worlds. So, what is the saying? Is that, that this God being known as Elohim, right? Which is the notion of the king's authority radiating out over, right? Or God's power to create an authority over everything, which is what actually is permeating and suffusing all of reality to make it reality be what it is. On the one hand, that is extremely superficial, vis-a-vis God. It's, it's the most, you know, um, uh, insignificant manifestation of God. But on the other hand, what is grounding that is something that is in a certain sense the deepest manifestation of God, which is that God is sufficient for God. God doesn't, God doesn't need to be more than what he is. And so that's what David Melch is coming to recognize is that God creating the world is not really about God creating the world, is it? The fact that God, the fact that God creates the world is manifesting that what? Ponder this. What's it manifesting? What's the root of God, the king being the king? What? His exaltedness. Right, so, right, his creating the world is his exaltedness over the world he, he is manifesting. The right, so the creation of the world is really just a way of God showing that he doesn't need anything. <laughs> we have to come to that place. Now, again, one second. Go back. It, it, that sounds really weird when you think about it in terms of God because it, it, it just becomes like weird ideas. Go back to the example I gave in a person and then you'll get more of a feel of it, okay? The fact that my life has inherent worth independent of what I do is what grounds that it is important that I act certain ways, right? So 
there's this kind of, it's paradoxical. It's not like a strict logical paradox, it's paradoxical. What makes it important that I behave properly is grounded in a sense that on some level, my value doesn't come from how I behave. Okay, go back now to the idea of like a king, right? What makes it the king's sovereignty extending over the entire empire, right? <coughs> makes that legitimate is because the king is some, it, it, it doesn't really need any of these people. It doesn't really need, right? He's, he's, he's sufficient for himself. He's in touch with something deeper that has nothing to do with anybody else, right? Take that again to have the idea of like a tzaddik, a true, complete total tzaddik, their life, doesn't be, their life isn't lacking anything that you're going to enhance. Their being with God truly is sufficient for them. And that's what makes it seem legitimate that they should have that kind of influence and authority over you. So, what does that mean about God? If God's, if God is Elohim, He is the powerful one. Right? He is Adna. He is the authority. What makes Him the powerful one? What makes Him the authority? Now, he's not powerful because He managed to do something. Because He is. Because He is. And does He become more is because He yeah. uses His power? Does he become more real because he creates us? That's what David Melech is saying. I'm not praising you because you created the world. I'm exalting, I'm elevating what it means you create the world to the truth, which is that you're Hamelech, you're the king Levade alone. This is more than just your power. Your power is simply expressing is is, is evidence of, is signifying a much more fundamental truth about you. God is real with a capital R in a way that you can never become that real. And if you are that real, nothing can, be, nothing can enhance you, nothing can subtract from you, and you're sufficient, right? And it's, from the, and it's that that gives credibility, gives legitimacy to the fact that God has this power and authority over others such that he can even create that which does not exist. Okay. Um, he, he builds on this idea for a while, but I really have to go. I just want to I'm just going to, um, in, 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 um, not like leaving with like, So he says in chapter five, the beginning, 
when a person contemplates deeply with their mind and their heart about this lower unity of Malchus, of his Malchus in the world, which they give Malcolm, which is the divine light and power which brings all the worlds into being something from nothing canal. He'll be moved in his heart with a divine love, meaning not the love of how a human being loves their creator, but how a divine being seeks to reconnect to to love Hashem with all of his heart, with both your inclinations, okay? So, I mean, there's more to this. The rest of chapter four builds on what we've been saying, and he puts it more into the verses in Ash, right? But then chapter five says, what's the result of really contemplating this? Is how do you start to feel towards God? You yearn to be with him. You yearn to be close to God, right? In the way that, in a way of genuine closeness, the only kind of being that, that this, this truth resonates with them. And that's going, to, uh, that's going to be what we call the light fire, the dark fire. Mm. Dark. That's the dark mm. fire. Okay? And that's right. And then he goes on in chapter 5. Um, and after describing that, he builds on that. And in chapter 6, he says, When one contemplates deeply the second contemplation, is to give oneself over totally to the simple unity of God. That's like a whole other thing. In other words, what we're learning about right now is what's supposed to move you to what? The dark fire. And then when that becomes so real to you, love God that way, you now become in a place where you can move to start thinking about things differently. Makes somewhat of a mm-hmm. bit of sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. I'll, I will tell you one important thing. I have to say this here. Um, you know that whole thing about the wick and the oil running mm-hmm. through it? and mm-hmm. Otherwise, there's not going to be the fire. If you soak your wick in oil and water first, it won't work. That's right. Do you know why traditionally Hasidim were very, very careful with halacha and especially kosher food and what they expose themselves to and working on themselves? So nothing's watered down? So nothing, there's nothing, right? There's nothing preventing the oil flowing so that when they do this, in other words, there is a common, the reason I'm saying this is because there's a common misconception that the way this works is first you contemplate and then you love God and then you do mitzvahs. Mm -hmm. Now he's going to come to another reason to do mitzvahs later on um, before this. But on, 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 a, on, a, on a purely like a notion of like the actual spiritual growth process before there's another aspect to mitzvahs themselves, which he speaks about later. There was an understanding that living as a, I'm using this word intentionally, pious Jew is a prerequisite for this. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Right. Which is why, this, generally speaking, if you try to start doing this stuff, even if you know how to contemplate, even if you know how to do this, it will not work if you're not sufficiently pious. I'm using the word sufficiently because it's not like a black and white thing. 
But if you need to be more pious for your oil to be able to f not to flow, using that analogy, right? Your wick needs to be drier. It doesn't matter how much contemplating works; it's not going to work. Um, which is why, again, traditionally the notion was this Hasidus is not there to make you a religious Jew. I mean, you can use the Hasidus to, to like motivate a person to be religious, but if this is going to go from more being inspirational learning to like actual spiritual practice, it needs to follow a basic level of piety that's appropriate for your soul and your life. Which, and the only way you'll know is. If it's right. working. If it's working. And you want, one other thing I'll tell you is the more it works, over time, the more pious you need to be. Because as you change, you're able to now, a different level. And so the piety that's sufficient at one stage of spiritual growth, right? And, and that's just important because very often we skip that. We, th we think that I'm going to go from from the learning and the feeling and the motion to the doing and it's actually doesn't work that way. So there's another reason later on he says why you need to do mitzvahs. It's a separate discussion. It's but it's not I, sandwiched. It's not like you do it and then you contemplate and then you do it and then you contemplate. Like, yeah, no, no, it, it's a cycle. But the thing is, if you're going to start, where do you start? Mm 